This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of a new baby, Liliana Jade Jenikov. Mazel tov to her parents, Kenzie and Michael, and of course, to her doting grandparents. May Liliana bring joy to her family, her community, and the entire nation, and of course, to her creator. And as always, my address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. So this is Parsha's Vayigash. This is the third of the trilogy, the Joseph trilogy. Joseph is about to give us the big reveal that he is, in fact, Joseph. But as of the beginning of the parsha, Benjamin is framed for a crime he didn't commit. Joseph had his favorite chalice placed in Benjamin's satchel, and he is now threatening to take Benjamin as a slave. He tells the rest of the brothers, you go back home, go back to your elderly father, Benjamin is my slave. And Judah, who at the end of last year's parsha had guaranteed the safety of Benjamin, is now approaching. And our parsha begins with a very tense exchange between Judah and Joseph. Judah is approaching. Judah is recapping the whole story, recapitulating the whole story, and making overt and not so overt threats towards Joseph. And of course, once Joseph sees that the brothers really care about Benjamin, they care about the other son of Rachel, and he gets the sense that they have repented for what they did to him. He, in fact, reveals himself to his brothers, and the Parsha begins the next phase of bringing Jacob and the rest of his descendants down to Egypt. Now, there's a beautiful Midrash here at the beginning of our Parsha that talks about this grand clash between Judah and Joseph. Now, the Midrash is progressively going to explicate a verse in Psalms. And this is kind of how the Midrash works. It takes one verse in Psalms or elsewhere in Scripture, and it shows us how maybe this is giving us the behind-the-scenes story of the exchange in our Parsha. And in our Parsha, of course, this is the exchange of Judah and Joseph. And it's telling us, this is a verse in Psalms 48.5, that there are two kings that are engaging with each other. And who are these two kings, says the Midrash? This is referring to king number one, which is Judah, and king number two, and that is Joseph. And they're getting angry at each other. And the tempers are flaring. And all the other people that are around them, namely the rest of the brothers, the other ten brothers of Judah and Joseph, they are astonished, they are shocked, and they cannot say a word. There is an exchange happening between two kings two monarchs, and the rest of the brothers say, this is something for them to argue. We see two kings here engaging with each other, and we have no say in the matter. We cannot open up our mouths. This is an exchange for kings. We are spectators. We're on the sidelines. We have two kings going on over here, and they're engaging, and they're getting angry at each other, and they are addressing each other. And we have no say in this matter. And the Midrash actually tells us that each one of these two brothers, each one of these two kings, of course, we know they're brothers, but Judah's unaware of that fact at the time. Each one of them is doing tremendous feats of strength and might to try to intimidate the other one. So, for example, the Midrash tells us, and this is kind of classic Midrashic allegory. We'll talk more about what it actually teaches us in a bit. It tells us that when Joseph, when he seized Benjamin 
And he said, the one who the chalice has found in his satchel will be my slave for a long time. Judah got angry. And Judah is compared to a lion. And this lion gave a roar. And this roar traveled 400 parsas or parsanes, which is essentially, you know, two or three miles. So this roar traveled almost a thousand miles. And it reached all the way to Canaan. And in Canaan, there was the nephew of the two participants of this exchange, namely the son of Dan, whose name was Chushim. And Chushim was deaf. And even though Chushim was deaf, and he's hundreds of miles away in the land of Canaan, he heard this very loud roar of the lion, of Judah, of one of the kings in this exchange. And when Chushim heard this, he also ran and jumped until he arrived in Egypt. And he came to Judah's side. Because Chushim, the son of Dan, the son of Jacob, Chushim, the nephew of Judah, Chushim, the nephew, of course, of Joseph as well. He too is like a lion. So you have two lions screaming at Joseph. And Joseph is worried, what's going to be? Maybe they're going to kill me. So what does Joseph do? What does the other king in this exchange do? He takes a marble pillar that he was sitting on and he kicks it and the whole pillar turns into dust. And when Judah sees that, he sees this king, this mighty person who he is unaware is actually Joseph, that he is so strong and he is so fierce. He says, wait a minute, I have a problem. This person, this king is even mightier than me. Who is this person? And Judah reached for his sword and tried to pull his sword out to go threaten Joseph. But the sword refused to be unsheathed. And Judah said, concludes the Midrash, it must mean that this person is in fact fearful of God because otherwise they would not be able to withstand to me pulling out my sword. Thus concludes a very, very interesting and surprising Midrash. We have two teams here. Judah and Joseph are two teams, and they're like boxers in a cage, circling each other, intimidating each other. And these two individuals are two teams going after each other. Now, it's interesting that, you know, the Midrash, of course, doesn't make any sense to us. On a literal level, what does it mean that, you know, Judah's shrieking so loudly, roaring so loudly that Hushim hears it all the way in Canaan and he jumps and he joins the fray and all the brothers are slinking away and Judah does a feat of strength and Joseph does a feat of strength. Of course, this Midrash raises all kinds of questions. It's very hard for us to process it quite literally. But we have the general concept here of two teams going after each other. Now, we know that it's not just the individuals who are kings. There are also two tribes, the tribes that Joseph and Judah had. They, too, are tribes that will beget kings. So, of course, Joseph is a king. Judah himself, we're not aware of him being a king in his lifetime, but he's the forebearer of, of David and, of course, the Davidic dynasty. 
So Solomon and all the kings of Judah, and of course Hillel and the family of the Nassim who were like kings, the leaders of the Jewish people during the Second Temple era and the time that came afterwards. And we know, of course, Messiah that we are awaiting is a direct descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. So we have two kings, individuals, and two kings that form tribes of monarchy. Moreover, this concept of Messiah, there's actually two of them. Did you know that? There are two Messiahs that we are awaiting. One of them is known as Messiah, Mashiach, Ben David, the son of David, the son of David. And a second one, known as Mashiach, Ben Yosef, Messiah, Ben Joseph, the son of Joseph. And this idea of Messiah, Ben Joseph is a very mysterious idea. We're not told a lot in the revealed sources about who this person is and what role they have to play. What we are told is that Messiah, Ben Joseph, will die, will die in a surprising fashion, in a way that will evoke universal mourning. So Messiah ben Joseph will die, Messiah ben David will endure, but Messiah ben Joseph, the first Messiah, will have a critical role to play in clearing the path for Messiah ben David. In fact, we're told the final clash before the era of Messiah will be between the Jews, Jacob, Israel, and his nemesis, his twin brother, Esav. A couple of weeks ago, Parshish Vayishlach, when they met, Jacob said to him, I'll see you later, I'll catch up to you eventually. Rashi, of course, tells us that that is a reference for the final showdown right before Messiah. Who was going to destroy Esav and the firepower of Esav, Amalek. Amalek, of course, is the grandson of Esav. Who is going to destroy this force in order to pave the way for Messiah? That will be the other Messiah, the first Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph. And in fact, we're told, this is something we've encountered already, that Joseph is like the, you know, the kryptonite of, of Esav. Right when Joseph was born, the verse tells us, When Rachel gave birth to Joseph, right then, Jacob told Laban, Send me, it's time for me to go home, to my homeland. Now, I am armed with the proper weaponry to engage with Asaph. And Rashi over there quotes the Talmud. Why does Jacob link his departure from Laban to the birth of Joseph. So he tells us, Rashi tells us, Talmud tells us, that Jacob foresaw that the only force that he has within him that can overcome Esav is Joseph. And there's a verse in Scripture to this effect, the house of Jacob is like a fire. The house of Joseph is the flame and the house of Esau, that's like the hay. Jacob was a fire, but a fire without a flame cannot consume the hay. And therefore, without Joseph, Jacob has no chance to defeat Esau. Once Joseph is born, 
Esav now is vulnerable to Jacob. The fire now has its animating force. The flame is there. And now everything that is needed to consume and to destroy Esav in a grand conflagration is present. Joseph is here and he can overcome Esav. And if the final showdown between Jacob and Esav, right before Messiah, the last battle is between Israel, Jacob, and Esav. The force to do that, that is Joseph. And that's the destiny of Messiah ben Joseph, to defeat Esav, to defeat Amalek. By the way, when was the first battle between the Jews and Amalek? Right after the Exodus, we're going to get to the book of Exodus in a couple of weeks. But in Parshas B'Shalach, the first war of the Jewish people, even before Sinai, is against Amalek. And Moshe tells Joshua, Joshua, go get some men and go make war with Amalek tomorrow. Joshua, of course, comes from the tribe of Ephraim, the son of Joseph. Who has the power to defeat Amalek? It is only Joseph and his descendants. And therefore, Joshua was the one who was selected to go fight with Amalek. Mashiach ben Joseph, the heir of Joseph, the heir of the flame that consumes Esau, that's going to be the force that finally defeats Amalek and Esau, paving the way for the other king, for the other Messiah, Messiah ben David. So in the Jewish world, we have two offices of monarchy, two kinds of kings. We have Judah and we have Joseph. And you'll notice that before Jacob can actually end up in Egypt in our Parsha, once Jacob agrees to go to Egypt, he sends Judah ahead of him. In chapter 46, verse 28, we read, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to go prepare the land for the arrival of Jacob and the entire nation. In order for the whole nation to be in a given place and flourish, you have to have two forces that are there ahead of time, both kings, both messiahs, Judah and Joseph. Joseph, of course, precedes Jacob in Egypt by 22 years. And once Jacob's on his way, he sends Judah, the other force, the other king, the other Messiah ahead of him to go pave the way, to go prepare the land. And we'll talk more about this in a little bit. Judah, he goes and he establishes a home for Jacob. Alternatively, he establishes an academy for scholarship. He prepares the infrastructure for the Jewish people to flourish in Egypt. This is kind of emblematic of Messiah. The role of Messiah is to pave the way for the rest of the Jewish people and subsequently all of humanity to arrive at their perfected state, which is the Messianic era and the Messianic utopia. So we have this idea of two kings and Joseph and Judah and the two messiahs. And there's a lot more to talk about this. You know, there's a lot of very advanced literature about the similarities of the two messiahs, the differences, the specific roles that they need to play. Though again, I'm saying it's advanced. 
if you look at the whole Talmud, I believe the Talmud mentions the concept of Messiah ben Joseph only once. And it's almost like a passing mention in the Talmud of the book of Sukkah, page 52a. But in the Kabbalistic literature, in the more advanced literature, of course, the Talmud already is very advanced, but even more advanced than the Talmud, more hidden than the Talmud, you find a lot of discussion about these two messiahs and exactly what they represent and exactly the roles that they need to play. So, for example, Judah is like the monarchy. Joseph is holiness. He's the one who withstands temptation. The true monarchy is the blend of these two. When you have the monarchy of Judah, but it's rooted in the holiness of Joseph, that beautiful combination, that symphonic unity is Messiah. We have the idea of the two tefillins. You wear two tefillins, one on your head and one by your heart. These two forces represent Judah and Joseph, the two kings. Now, it's interesting. Some of the sources say that Judah is the head and Joseph is the heart. Others say vice versa. But there are two forces here at play, two kings, two messiahs. Both of them are needed. And they work in tandem. Joseph, perhaps, is the hidden Torah. Judah is the revealed Torah. The way they earn their monarchies is very different. Both of them accomplish great things. Both of them overcome very difficult challenges, but in very different ways. Joseph overcomes temptation in a very private fashion. David, who comes from Judah, and Judah himself, both of them have very public, at least apparent sins or or blunders to a certain extent, but they repent for it. And therefore, the way, again, the Kabbalists frame this is that Messiah ben Joseph, that's a very lofty level. That's someone who's complete holiness, triumphing over temptation. And that's a level that very few people can aspire to. And therefore, that's not the ultimate Messiah. The ultimate Messiah is someone like Judah, who does something very embarrassing in a very public fashion when he accuses his daughter-in-law of a crime that he himself committed. And he's able to fess up. And he's able to admit. David is similar, of course. He has the very public sin of Bathsheba. And of course, what has actually happened there is a subject for its own discussion. But he is not someone with a flawless background. He's got some skeletons in the closet. He has a box of rodents in the words of the Talmud hanging from his neck. Someone like that can inspire the masses. And here the Midrash is telling us that at the beginning of our parasha, we have these two forces and they're clashing. There's a clash of kings at the beginning of our parasha. Now, it's interesting, you look at the Midrash, and it has this, this line about Chushim, the deaf son of Dan. And he hears the cry, all oh, the wing cannot, and he jumps. So, of course, it's not to be understood literally. Not to say that all Midrash is non-literal, but this one definitely is. There's an idea being conveyed over here. There's something at the beginning of our Parsha that is symbolizing the assembling of the forces of Messiah and the setting of the stage for the big reveal. Chushim 
is the only son of Dan. He was also deaf, hard of hearing. In Nature's parasha, when Jacob is about to be buried, the Midrash tells us, and we've spoken about this in the past, I believe, that when the Jewish people arrived at the cave of Machpelah to bury Jacob, Esav was standing in their way and preventing them from burying Jacob in the final remaining spot in the cave. And they said to him, wait a minute, you sold your spot, your burial spot over here in exchange for all of Jacob's wealth that he earned outside the land of Israel. Rashi Fat tells us in our parsha that Jacob made a big pile of gold and silver and said to Asaph, I'll give you all of this, all the money that I earned outside of the land of Israel. I prefer to exchange that for your spot, the eighth and final burial spot in the cave of the patriarchs. And Asaph agreed. And now they're about to bury Jacob. Asaph is still alive. And he says to them, where's the documentation? They say, well, oh no, we left it in Egypt. We left it in Egypt. Let's run back. So Naphtali, the swiftest of them all, runs back. And Hushim, the deaf son of Dan, is trying to figure out what the, what the hubbub is all about. And someone tells him, maybe using sign language, oh, you see that man? He is stopping our granddaddy, our grandfather, Jacob, from being buried. And Hushim erupts in rage, pulls out a sword, and runs over and decapitates Esav, kills him. Esav's head rolls into the cave to be cradled at the feet of Isaac. And with Esav knocked off, Jacob is buried. What this is telling us is that there's a third force of Messiah. That's the force of Hushim. Part of this trio, part of this triumvirate, there is Hushim, who is also compared to a lion. Moreover, Messiah and David's mother, so his father, comes from the Davidic line. His mother comes from the tribe of Dan, from Hushim. And if the final showdown before Messiah is with Esau, who was the tip of the spear of Joseph? Who is that final force that decapitates this force of Esav? Who is the final force to destroy Esav? That's Chushim. Now, you'll notice the word Chushim is spelled in the Torah, a ches, a shin, a yud, and a mem. Chushim. There's no vav there. It's just a ches, shin, yud, mem. If you unscramble those letters... You have the word Mashiach, the same four letters as Mashiach. There is an element of the force of Mashiach, Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah ben Joseph, Mashiach ben David, ben David, Judah. And there's a third element, a third component of this triumvirate, that's Chushim, the deaf son of Dan. There's a whole other angle of Messiah, the Messiah is going to be completely underestimated. You know, Dan, poor guy, he's only one son. And his son, you know, has a handicap. He's born hard of hearing. If you had to prognosticate, you know, how well would this tribe do? 
people would say, eh, you know, only one son, the son's deaf. You cannot imagine there's a very bright future for this tribe. Whereas Benjamin, Benjamin had 10 sons. So you would imagine that, you know, if you fast forward a couple hundred years, Benjamin's tribe will be much larger than Dan's. But ultimately, the tribe of Dan burgeoned into the second largest tribe in the nation in both counties of the Jewish people in the wilderness and in the plains of Moab. That is part of the messianic cocktail. There's a threat that Asaph is not worried about. Of all of Jacob's kids and grandkids, the one deaf guy in the corner, Hushim, he is not a threat. But that force, the force of power that is completely underappreciated, that is part of the messianic experience. And just like the tribe is flourishing under the radar, and the greatness and the size and the power of this tribe, the tribe of Dan from Hushim, is completely unexpected, so too that is part of the messianic experience. And therefore, that's the deeper message of this of this Midrash. All the forces of Messiah are coalescing, and maybe they're at odds with each other. The, the kings are clashing, but ultimately they're all going to come together for this grand reveal, paving the way for the rest of the Jewish people to follow. There's a summit happening here, a summit of the Messianic triumvirate, a very advanced idea in this Midrash. But of course, in the Parsha podcast, we try to keep it simple. So here's the question I want to pose. The Midrash tells us that there is a clash of kings here, two kings going at it, Judah and Joseph. Now we know Joseph, of course, he indeed, he was already a king. At the time, Judah was not a king. In fact, in his lifetime, he never became a king. So it's true that, of course, his descendants, they were destined to become kings. David, Solomon, the divinic monarchy, Hillel dynasty, of course, Messiah. We're also told, this is more of a subject for next week's parasha, we're told that all legitimate kings come from Judah via the line of David. And that's why the Hasmonean dynasty ended in ignominy, because they illegitimately coronated themselves as kings. The Talmud tells us, whoever claims to be a descendant of the Maccabees of the Hasmoneans is nothing more than a slave. Why? Why did they have such a tragic end? The answer is because they encroached on an office, on an institution, the monarchy that wasn't theirs. They were priests from the tribe of Levi, and they have a lot of important jobs to do, of course, for the Jewish people. But they had no business claiming the throne. The throne is destined for David, the descendant of Judah, and David's descendants. So Judah, of course, has in his future, he has kings. But this Midrash is describing Judah himself. Judah himself was not a king at the time, and in fact, never became one. How can Judah be described as a king? Is this a good question? Is this an interesting question? Well, listen to the answer. It seems quite evident from this Midrash that Judah was a king. Because kingliness, kingship, is an attribute. It's a quality. 
There are characteristics of being a monarch, a king, a sovereign. And even though Judah was not formally coronated as a king, he did not have a kingdom in his lifetime, but he already had the qualities of a king. And then for him and Joseph, they went mano a mano, a clash of kings, two kings in the ring, and everyone else slunk away as spectators. Judah was a king, even though it wasn't quite manifested. In a kingdom, the quality of kingship was already present. And this is the question that I want to pose. What, in fact, are the attributes of a king? What do Joseph and Judah have in common? What are the qualifications of a king? Is there any commonality that Judah and Joseph have that can maybe reveal to us what, in fact, the essence of being a king actually is? So if you compare the story of of Joseph and Judah, you know, we see that both of them overcome difficult challenges. Joseph, of course, with the wife of Potiphar, Mrs. Potiphar, and the heroism that he displayed in fending off her seductions. Judah, of course, made a name for himself, a name of distinction when he admitted his guilt in the episode of Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Both of them, of course, put their lives on the line for what was right. Judah guaranteed Benjamin's safe return and even confronted and threatened Joseph. Joseph himself, he's escaping, he's fleeing from Mrs. Potiphar, come what may. Both of them have a strong belief in doing what's right and don't think about the consequences. We'll deal with the consequences. But I want to suggest the following idea. I want to suggest an idea that maybe explains to us what the central quality of kingliness is, or of kingship. And of course, this is gender neutral. So queenship as well would be explained by this idea. We all need certain things to flourish. Almost all of us. We need a certain framework. We need a structure. You have to have a good family, good environment, good community, a good schedule, good friends. All of us, or almost all of us, do best within a system. And we're very reliant on that system. And if that system gets destabilized, then our whole life is up in the air, is at risk. We are a very fickle species. If a strong wind comes, it can knock us off our feet, it can throw us off our game, and we can get discombobulated. This idea of structure, of having a system, of having a schedule, of being within a certain environment, it's critical. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us anchored. We gain stability. We get rooted in a good place. And therefore, guardrails of this sort are imperative. That describes most people. The definition of a king is someone who can operate and even flourish alone without those guardrails, without a system 
that's supporting him or her. Moreover, a king or a queen can establish the guardrails for other people. Let me explain what I mean. God, of course, is the ultimate king. Melech Malchei Hamlachim. God is king of all kings. The most basic definition of God that we have in our theology is that God is self-sufficient. In the beginning of the laws of Yisodia Torah, the foundations of Torah tells us that the most important thing to believe is to believe in God. And this God, of course, is the creator of everything else. All things can be divided up into two categories. All entities are either a creator, which is only one, or a creation, which is everything else. Everything else is a creation. Only God is a creator. What's the definition of this creator? So the Ramam gives us a very interesting definition. He tells us, if you were to consider that this thing, i.e. God, does not exist, nothing else can exist. Every other reality is dependent on his reality. Whereas, if you could consider that nothing else existed, meaning none of the creations existed, he would be unaffected. He would not be nullified. He would not be destroyed. Because all other things, all creations depend upon him, but he is not dependent upon any one of them. And that's why the reality of God is different than the reality of everything else. God's reality is independent. It's an absolute existence. It completely does not rely or depend on anything else, whereas every other thing is only a relative reality. They only exist so long and insofar as God wants them to exist. The most basic definition of God that we're told here is that God relies on nothing and everything else relies on him. And that's why God is the ultimate king. The concept of a human king is to have some measure of this kind of independence and self-reliance. Of course, a human king also relies on God, and it's not even a shadow of the divine in any way. But just as man is encouraged to emulate God, you should walk in God's ways. Just like God is merciful, you be merciful. Just as God is kind and benevolent, you be kind and benevolent. Just as God takes care of the widows and the orphans, you do the same. We're told to try to walk in God's ways to emulate him. A human king is someone who resembles God in the fact that the human king is independent of others. Now again, man, of course, can never be independent of God. But to the degree that man can operate and flourish without those aforementioned guardrails and structures, man is adopting the quality of a king. If you study the story of Joseph and Judah, you see how both of them flourished on their own. Without support infrastructure, without a system to keep them in check, without the necessary safety measures that everyone else has and needs, these two brothers flourished and achieved the quality 
of kinship. Let's make a demonstration here. Jacob is told about the wonderful news. Wonderful news! Joseph is alive. He's a king in Egypt. Go see him. Before Jacob goes, so of course he travels to Beersheba, but once he's on his way, he sends Judah ahead. Go to Joseph and go establish the community. What does that mean? So Rashi tells us two opinions, either to set up the living arrangements in Egypt. Alternatively, the Midrash tells us to establish an academy of Torah study in Egypt. If you look at the Sifsei Chachamim commentary on Rashi, he says that the word lehoros, lefanav, to go provide guidance in front of him, that is spelled missing above, and therefore has the same letters as Torah, and that's indicating in the verse, it's spelled in an unusual fashion to indicate that Judah is setting up the Torah infrastructure of the land in Egypt before the arrival of the rest of the people. So if you think about this, it's kind of strange. You know, Torah is telling us something which must, must, be, must be important, right? Torah only gives us salient and critical information. Jacob is already heading down to Egypt. How long does that journey take? So maybe, you know, with all the kids and all the women and all the possessions, it takes a while. But still, they're on the way down. Judah, you go ahead of us. And you go establish an academy. Before anyone else gets here, ahead of time, there are prerequisites. You have to have a house. Can't just walk in there and expect to find a place to live. You have to have an academy. You have to have a place to study. Now, it's important to remember, Egypt was a spiritually filthy place. Idolatry was everywhere. Egypt was engorged with idolatry to such a degree that when Moshe communicated with God in Egypt, he had to leave the city because the city was just packed with idolatry. Prophecy was just not possible in such an impure place. Jacob was worried that if the family gets there without the academy set up ahead of time, then such a polluted and contaminated place, the air of Egypt, would ruin them. And therefore it was critical to send Judah ahead of them to get the academy of Torah humming and it's there in place ahead of time so that the nation when they arrive, or the soon-to-be nation when they arrive, they could get there and they could thrive and they will be spared from getting destroyed by the noxious spiritual environment of Egypt. Very deep idea here. There are some things that have to be set up ahead of time. It's critical and it's imperative. And the Torah needs to tell us about it. Judah has to run ahead of time, get there beforehand, establish the academy. You cannot wait. Even if the second you get there, you set up the academy, it's not good enough. It has to precede you. Why? Because everyone needs structure. 
Everyone needs the infrastructure to flourish. And if you go to Egypt and you don't have that infrastructure, you're done. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say that he was in Sweden during the war, during the World War II. And he said it was unbelievable what kind of environment there was in Sweden at the time. A lot of yeshiva students found their way to Sweden because it was neutral during the war. And within a month, all of them had dropped their observance and their Torah. And some of these people came from very distinguished backgrounds and they studied in the best yeshivos. But there was something in the air in this place that just exuded heresy and anyone who came get got corrupted. And he himself said about himself, the only reason why I didn't get corrupted is because I made it my business to study Musar, to study Jewish ethics every single day. That was Egypt, just a thousand times worse. You walk in there and the the acrid stench of idolatry was everywhere and you would get corrupted if there wasn't some sort of moderating or limiting factor of an academy of Torah that was established ahead of time. If you think about it, we have the question about Joseph. Joseph was there himself, alone, in a cesspool of sin, not for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, for 22 years. He's abandoned by his family. He's cut off from his people, his father, his infrastructure. There's no academy. He's all alone. And he never once departed from clinging to the faith, from adhering fastidiously to the Torah and to the righteousness that he learned by Jacob. When Joseph sent his brothers back to his father, he made sure to send with them wagons. And Rashi tells us that these wagons were a subliminal message to Jacob. Oh, do you remember the wagons that we talked about on my way down here? It wasn't quite wagons. The Hebrew word for wagons is the same Hebrew word as an egla, which is a small female calf. And there is a law in the Torah called the Eglar Rufa. And therefore, when he sent him the wagons of the Agolos, he was hinting, oh, 22 years ago, when we studied Torah together, when you dropped me off to go check up on my brothers, we're studying Torah together. I'm still there. I haven't departed our study. I haven't budged from the lofty level that I had when I was with you. Not only did Joseph survive spiritually in Egypt, He thrived and he flourished without the academy, without the family, without the infrastructure, under the most trying conditions known to man. What grounded him there? How did he have the fortitude and the strength of character to endure? That is a king. The ability to inoculate yourself from the swirling influences around you, that is the mark of a monarch. Now, if you study the story closely, you'll notice that Judah actually shares this quality. You know, Jacob is worried, even if I arrive in Egypt and I establish an academy that day, it's not good enough. It has to be humming. It has to be in session before the family gets there. But who does he send to go open it? He sends Judah. 
Wait a minute. Jacob's so worried about the rest of the family. Why is he not worried about Judah? Judah's going to arrive to establish the academy. But when he gets there, there ain't no academy. Why is he not concerned about Judah? The answer is, is that Judah too was a king. And Judah already demonstrated that he had the ability to retain his standing even when separated from his system, from his infrastructure. When Judah had the episode with Tamar, the section starts off by saying that Vayered Yehuda descended, Judah descended from his brothers. He was demoted. He was alone. His wife died. His sons died. He was away from his network, away from his family. And nevertheless, he reached his high point in the episode of Tamar by admitting his guilt and retaining his integrity. Infrastructure, that system, that social group, that is what ordinary people need. Kings are distinguished by the fact that they are independent. And therefore, they have the ability to build the infrastructure to benefit others. And therefore, Jacob, when he needs to send someone to go establish the academy, there's no one else that he can send ahead of the family aside from Judah. Judah, you go ahead of the delegation and you establish the academy. That is a king unflappable, even without the ordinary guardrails that everyone else needs. Now, this idea is actually well-founded in the sources. So there are many sources to this effect. So for example, Talmud tells us the book of Sachem and elsewhere, Melech porates geder. A king can shatter walls to make a path and no one can stop him. So on a simple level, it means that if a king needs to travel and there's a wall, he doesn't need to inconvenience himself and his retinue, he could just break down the wall. But on a deeper level, what it's telling us is that a king shatters walls. He shatters the guardrails. Most people need the guardrails. The king can be upstanding even without them. The Pericot of Lezer tells us that a groom, a chassin, a groom is like a king. Perhaps the most critical element of marriage is independence. Prior to someone's marriage, you know, they're supported by their family. They live at home. They rely on their parents. The essence of marriage is becoming a little bit like a king and a queen. To develop your own family unit. The Talmud tells us in the book of Tzubas, page 106a, a righteous judge is supposed to be like a king that needs nothing. A judge that's always trying to curry favor, maybe they'll get some benefits from other people, that is not a judge that could serve as a model of integrity because they're not like a king. The definition of a king is someone who needs nothing from anyone, someone who can flourish on their own, Someone who is independent and doesn't need others to rely on. Other humans, that is. Of course, everyone relies on the Almighty. The Ramam tells us that a king is like the heart of the nation. 
a king pumps blood and life, blood, and vitality for others. In our partial, we have something that's happening here. There's a showdown between two kings. And yes, Judah has not yet been coronated. In fact, in his lifetime, he won't be coronated. But he has already earned the qualification of kingship, and him and Joseph are going at it. And everyone else slinks away into the background as spectators. Now, why is this important to us? After all, we're plebeians. We're simpletons. And in general, you know, monarchies are in decline. We don't really intend to resurrect the French monarchy. We can't hope to bring back the Romanovs. They're all dead, of course. Even Israel. Israel today prides itself as being a democracy. And yes, it's true that the Torah doesn't really believe in democracy. In the Torah's view, not everyone's opinion should be taken into account. The Torah system is more of a theocracy. Maybe if we have to have the actual implementation of government, we believe in a benevolent or, or a righteous monarchy as being the ideal. So maybe it's important for us to know what are the qualifications of a king, but still it's really hard for us to envision Israel turning into a monarchy. You know, as Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all others. So we don't really have a monarchy. So why is it important to us to learn about what it takes to be a king? I think there are two points here, two lessons to take away from this description of these two kings. So first of all, I think this whole story tells us about the importance of a structure, but also about the drawbacks of having a rigid structure. Before the nation descends to Egypt, Jacob has an existential concern. What's going to be when we get there and we don't have the kind of infrastructure that we need to flourish? That's very dangerous. And therefore, he's committed to getting an academy established ahead of the nation. That critical infrastructure has to be in place for the people to do well. And that's great for most people. But Joseph, he indeed flourished on his own. He ended up alone, away from his support structure, and he discovered and he tapped into tremendous reservoirs of greatness precisely because he was stranded on a spiritual island, an island teeming with all kinds of spiritual threats. Is universal education good or bad? So we would say that it's wonderful, right? Everyone gets an education. Everyone has literacy to one degree or another. But I would say is that standardized education is great for the masses. They have that structure. But it's harmful for the kings. It's harmful for those who are total outliers. If Judah and Joseph did not have their departure from the structure and the system, they wouldn't have become kings. And the kings who are forced to conform to the rigid stricta of standardized education, they are also subject to the mediocre standards of the masses. As they say, standardized 
education killed the polymaths. So I think we have to take this into account when we design systems. We have to try to strike the, you know, the fine line, the balancing act between covering your downside, covering your risk with robust infrastructure, make sure there's always the academy there. But every so often, maybe venture out into the wild and aspire for greatness, aspire for monarchy or the qualities of monarchy. I was thinking just about this idea. In the yeshiva, you have the zman, the semester, and the benazman, which is between semesters. And this is the way the yeshivas were designed by some of the most capable pedagogues of all time. This idea, you have three semesters a year, and then between every semester, there is the benazmanim, the between semesters, where there is no structure. I was thinking that this is kind of the the balance that is intended to be struck by the system. Most of the time, you got to make sure the, the academy is working. You got to have the academy, got to have the infrastructure. You have to put everyone in a certain box. But every once in a while, you open up the box and let the people spread their wings. And the off time, that's when those kings are made. I think if we are to aspire to to become big, to make something of ourselves, it's important for us to realize that although the system is critical and imperative, it is designed for the masses. And if you want to be just like everyone else, then limit yourself to the aspirations and the ambitions of the system. But if you want to make something transformational of yourself, you got to think a lot bigger you got to think beyond the system. The average pace is for chumps, we are told, and aspire for something absolutely extraordinary and exceptional. So that's one idea. Another idea I wanted to share is that really all of us, there are times in our lives that we are on our own and we have no one else to help us, of course, besides for the Almighty, It's just us and the Almighty. We're told that our life's mission is to overcome the Yitzhahara. There's the evil connection within us, a very capable and competent and nefarious foe within us that's trying to get us to sin and trying to get us to not make something of ourselves and to make all the blunders that life has. And the way the Talmud describes those who overcome this force, they describe the person as a ruler, as a king. Who is the mighty one? He who controls Yetzirah. Our objective as individuals is to become a king over our whims, over our instincts. And therefore it's imperative for everyone to learn how to burnish their kingly or queenly credentials. In our struggle against our formidable foe, we have to understand this principle. We have to establish systems and guardrails and infrastructure and community. And that will keep us, hopefully, for the most part, grounded. 
But we also have to have a contingency plan for what happens when things go off script, things go off the rails, and it's just us, mano a mano, against the Yetzirah. We are going to need to marshal the forces of kingship to win those battles. Okay, let's get to this week's amazing, incredible, exquisite insight. Are you ready? Let's begin. Once the brothers finally realize this is Joseph, he introduces himself, and initially they're a bit skeptical, and they realize it's him, and they go get Jacob, and now they come back with their families. The verse is telling us about Pharaoh meeting Joseph's family. And Joseph is very keen on making sure that Pharaoh doesn't take his brothers and nominate them to posts of importance in the kingdom. And therefore he tells them, well, go tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds and you've been shepherds for a long time and you know, the Egyptians don't like shepherds, so they'll make sure that you stay in Goshen. And that theme is repeated several times in chapter 46 of our Parsha. So Rabbeinu B'chai, one of the commentaries on the Torah, he has a fascinating piece about shepherding flock and why specifically were the brothers shepherds. You know, of all the occupations... We've heard reliably Jews make fine lawyers and physicians and accountants. Why are the brothers shepherds? So he says something really interesting. He says, first, well, it's a good business. Think about it. Look how much profit there is. You're able to share the wool and you have the milk that these animals produce and you have the children, the babies that they produce. And it's also good business because you can make a lot of money without resorting to theft. It's a great business. Lots of profit without the concern of attempting, you know, to be a used car salesman or really anything in the car industry. It's really hard to not sometimes, you know, fudge the numbers or – and sorry for attacking any um, people in the car industry – but that's what I've been told, or certainly that is the impression. In fact, I was speaking to someone recently. This is not in my notes. I'm going to talk about this. Someone was telling me recently that every time he deals with car people, whether it's an oil change, whether it's a used car salesman, he always gets that feeling that he's being you know, taken advantage of. I don't know if it's true or not, but that is the stigma. So whether it's true or not, I don't know. So I take back any accusations. But here we're told specifically that shepherding, it's lots of profit without any risk or with minimal risk of sin. Moreover, he tells us that the Jewish people, the family of Jacob, they had a premonition, they had a sense that they're going to end up in Egypt and they want to remain secluded from the rest of the Egyptians in order to be able to retain their Jewish identity. And they knew that the only way to do that is to adopt a way of life, an occupation that's so unconscionable to the Egyptians. And by doing that, they will be able to retain their identity. And then he tells us that in general, you find that it's not just the brothers who are shepherds. You find lots of tzaddikim are shepherds. Abel, Cain and Abel, and Moshe, and, and the prophet Samuel, and Saul, and David, they're all shepherds. Why? Why is there a connection between shepherding and righteousness? So he says, I mean, fascinating. 
He says, a shepherd has to be far away from the community. And society in the pastures grazing with their animals. And by doing that, you avoid many of the common sins of the masses. So, for example, there's not a lot of gossip out in the field. Not a lot of shonara, evil talk. No false oaths. And not a lot of promiscuity. You're just alone, just you and the animals. Not a lot of theft. All the bad things of society and civilization are avoided if you're out alone, away from society, you're spared from all these terrible sins. Moreover, when you're alone and you're able to spend time with yourself, that's a very fertile grounds for prophecy and spiritual development. And no one sees you. No one could stop you to th- about thinking about God. You could really flourish when you don't have other people around you to a certain extent. Done properly, of course. So I was thinking this is kind of like the mirror image of what we said earlier. You have to establish the academy to ensure that there's a good community and good infrastructure. And here we see the opposite idea. Just as it's important to have a good community and a good environment and a good structure and a good infrastructure, it's important to stay away from bad company and bad influences. Place some distance between you and a society of sinners and superficiality. Be in a place, position yourself in a place where you can flourish. Now, I don't expect anyone reading this or listening to this to move to a farm or to a ranch, as they say in Texas. But I was reading this. I was thinking a lot about social media. Lots of Lashonara and gossip, and vitriol, and hatred being spewed. It's really a bad place to flourish spiritually. If you get off social media, you become a shepherd, a modern-day shepherd, and your life will be immeasurably improved as a result. So it's one of the ideas here. The nation's being set up for their next challenge. They're going to Egypt. And there's the positive, setting up the infrastructure, setting up the academy. And there's the negative or the aversion to the negative, distancing yourself from bad forces and bad influences. Those two together enable you to flourish. Some of us, of course, can become kings to one degree or another. All of us need to develop the abilities of the king to be able to flourish regardless of our circumstances But that's the idea on Parshas Vayigash. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this at least 10% of how much pleasure I got in preparing it. Have an amazing rest of your day. Have a fantastic and splendid rest of your week. And a wonderful, sensational, peaceful, incredible Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.